0: Good morning. My name is Wade. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want you to put a mental finger on this phrase we just read. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This life of the world to come. Keep that in your head. Our text today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and 6 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 10 Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory None of, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirits, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is the Word of God. So... Um, I'm a CS Lewis fan and I think some of you guys might be as well. And you might have heard this quote from him before. It's uh, a bit of a well-known quote and this is how it goes. If we find in ourselves if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, this is a uh, great quote. Probably not not the last time we'll quote it from this pulpit. Uh, And and I think understanding the background of C.S. Lewis will help us appreciate this quote even more. So, the story of C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with it, goes like this. He grew up in a religious environment. This is back in the... Uh, early 20th century, where everyone uh, went to church uh, for him in the in Britain, uh, it was just kind of expected that you would be familiar with religious terms, theological concepts, and vocabulary. This is something that he was familiar with but as he as he grew older, the faith that was taught to him seemed to make less and less sense, and he he made attempts at understanding the Christian faith but As he did that, he became more and more disillusioned with the idea of a God and of the church. So he continued to study the Bible, but as he did, he kept on running into these questions about the faith that he wasn't able to answer. He wasn't able to find any satisfactory explanation for the things that were explained to him. Yet at the same time, he continued to feel this pull of something beyond himself. So this continued throughout his teen years, in his 20s. And he says that he was most frustrated and he was most disappointed that God hadn't revealed himself clearly when C.S. Lewis asked him to. And yet he continued to search for the truth. And, And after years of wrestling with these many difficult questions that he had, and after many conversations with his friends, the Inklings, uh, the Inklings was this literary group uh, of friends that just encouraged each other to write, and they gave each other ideas. Uh, J.R. Tolkien was one of the Inklings, as well as a man named Hugo Dyson. He had countless conversations with these guys. And finally, at the age of 32, C.S. Lewis, after years of searching, he came to believe in Christ. And we know all this because he wrote, He writes about his process of coming to the faith. But some scholars, they, they question his, his memory. Because in later years, when C.S. Lewis was writing about his conversion experience, he described, on the day that he was converted, he described masses of bluebells. These are a type of flower. There was a mass of bluebells making a carpet on the earth. But... He became a believer in September, and bluebells don't bloom in September. So scholars say, I think he got something wrong there. The author, Rebecca Reynolds, points this out. Did Lewis make a mistake? Perhaps, but I don't think so. I think Lewis was offering a wink to the astute. I think he meant that during those first few moments of finally beginning to see... He was walking in a realm in which the blue flower always blooms. Maybe C.S. Lewis was giving us a little hint as to what really happened to him. He entered into another realm that went beyond what we can see with our own eyes. Now, what would it look like for us to live in light of a reality in which the bluebells always bloom, or to put it another way, Do you live as if there's a reality that transcends this one? Were we made for another world? If you've been with us for the past few months, you will know that we've been talking about the nature of the church from the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been talking about the nature of ministry, what this church is supposed to look like. So what does all this talk of some transcendental realm have to do with us? Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the contrast between the wisdom of man and the the foolishness of man. We've been looking at the powerful people, the powerful figures of this world and the weaknesses of those who are in the church. We've been looking at the eloquence of orators and the trembling and the weakness of God's messengers. And today we're going to look at two contrasting realities. Paul, as as we read in this passage, he speaks of the wisdom of the sage and the wisdom of God. I'm going to put it in these terms, not just the wisdom of the sage and the wisdom of God, but two different realms in which we live. So my hope this morning is that we would understand that we really do belong to another realm, other than what we can experience with our senses, And perhaps, like Lewis, we can say with him, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if we really understand this, if we understand that we were made for another realm, this will change the way we think about what we do as a church. So to do that, we have three points which are in your bulletin. Number one, temporal wisdom. Number two, the timeless wisdom. And number three, the revelation of the Spirit's. So our first point. Temporal wisdom. Several weeks ago we looked at, as we looked at the first chapter of First Corinthians, we discussed those who the world would consider wise. The scribes, the debaters, these are the people that shape how we think. These are the influencers. These are the people that that we pay attention to. They tell us, or we we hear from them, this is how you should budget your time, this is how you should budget your money. This is what you should strive to Toward as a human being, the wise of the sage, giving us wisdom. In verse 6 of today's passage, Paul adds to this. He speaks of a type of wisdom from these people. This is a wisdom of the sage. In his book, Disappearing Church, Mark Sayers, he identifies the beliefs that, that provide the dominant framework that we as 21st century Westerners live by. So here's a list of seven seven, uh, beliefs that shape how we think and live as Americans or as Westerners in the 21st century. So the first, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. The second... Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedoms, happiness, self definition, and self expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world would, will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology will motor this progression toward utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. That's a lot. You probably didn't catch that because I just said a lot of words. But what ties all these beliefs together, is a belief in self, is a belief in self-improvement, is a belief that we can move forward as enlightened people for our own good. And Sayers, the author of this book, he points out that these beliefs are not conservative values and liberal values. These are held by seemingly opposing groups, liberal, conservative, free market economists, and leftist socialists, hippies and tech entrepreneurs, We all want to be moving forward. We all want to be freed from the shackles of traditional thinking and large institutions and religious organizations. He continues, this is what he says, These beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They are not enforced, rather they are imbibed. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at an at an almost subconscious level through the high priests of advertising and the techno profits of silicon valley i would add to that if you watch television if you listen to pop music these people are telling us something about reality or their perception of reality they're telling us how you should think express yourself be yourself so this is the understanding of life that dominates our culture. This is the wisdom of the sage that Paul writes about. This is a culmination of the generations of philosophy and social movements. This tra- and the trajectory of, of modern, uh, the modern West has been one of increasing trust in the ability of self, of humans to define themselves apart from an objective reality outside of themselves, namely uh, a supernatural being called God. And this is, there's an increasing suspicion of those that say otherwise. So when Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, as he writes about this wisdom of the age, he's referring to the philosophy that drives the way that we live. And this is not just a first century Corinthian problem. This is how we think as 21st century Bay Area residents. Fundamentally, we have the same beliefs, that we want to, we want to define our own lives, we wanted to find reality apart from God. Now, this isn't just a mindset of those outside the church. This is true of you and me. I listen to radio stations. I don't listen to uh, that much Christian radio. I listen to what you listen to. I watch probably maybe the same shows that you watch on Netflix. I might read the same books as you. And I've heard these things. I, it, in some way, it affects how I think, how I live. And maybe this is true of you as well. Some questions that we can use as diagnostic tools. If we believe that we need to look forward, if we believe that we need to look inward to find the real us, rather than to our creator, if we think that joy and meaning is found in life experiences rather than worshiping and serving God, if we think that the people around us are barriers to our happiness rather than a gracious gift that God has given us as a community, if we tell other people to just be themselves, if we think that we deserve all that we possess rather than acknowledging that it was God that gives and he can also take away, if we believe that we can shape ourselves, shape our lives apart from submitting to the Lord of this life, if the comfort and safety, if comfort and safety is what we want most for our children, if we protect our reputations more than we protect the reputation of Jesus, then we've fallen into the wisdom of this age. If you've ever ever thought that, I know that I have, have you ever thought that as well? And this is so insidious because Our decent and respectable friends and neighbors, even those people that we go to church with, they think this way, and we absorb the values. and We hardly ever consider whether or not it's right. And there's hardly anyone that says, hey, is the way you're thinking really correct? But the church has something to say about this, and we can say that there's so much more than all these things that... Those who live in the wisdom of this age are living for. There's so much more. In the film Little Miss Sunshine, there's a scene in which Dwayne, he's riding uh, across, just, he, he and his family, they're, they're taking this long trip to a uh, beauty pageant for uh, the younger sister. They're riding in this rickety old van in the fa- with the family, and Dwayne is 17 years old, and his dream is to become a jet pilot. So his little sister, he's giving him, she's been really playful, she's like eight or nine years old, she's giving him a vision test, and he does fine, he's like, the E's pointing this way and that way, and I can see the little E, it's fine. And then she pulls out cards to test his ability to see colors, and he looks at them and he looks confused, because all he sees is a bunch of dots that all look the same. His sister says, no, it's easy, all you need to do is tell me what number what letter do you see in these dots? He looks at the card, and he can't see anything. Dwayne's uncle looks over to him, and he says to him, Dwayne, I think you're colorblind, and you can't be a jet pilot if you're colorblind. And Dwayne, a wave of panic washes over him. He starts kicking against the side of the van. He he starts pounding the seats in front of him. He starts shaking violently and the father pulls over the rickety van. Dwayne runs out. He's crying, he's pulling his hair. And the first words that come out of Dwayne's mouth in the entire movie is the F-word screamed at the earth. He's cursing the earth because he's colorblind. He went through 17 years of life not, not having a clue that he was colorblind. He planned his life around a career that required perfect vision, and now his dreams have fallen apart. He's unable to see an aspect of reality that he never knew existed. And do you know that every single person is like Dwayne? Perhaps not colorblind, but we're ignorant of our blindness to a realm that we never imagined can exist. To reference C.S. Lewis, this is the other world that we were meant for. Because whatever we're desiring can't be found in this world. We're colorblind to something that we had no idea existed. And our job as a church is to point out this blindness to the world. We need to be a witness to what is true. This is the prophetic nature of the church, is to tell the world, this is how things are, and this is how things can be. As a church, we need to tell our friends that they were made for another world, another realm. And we don't just point out the blindness like Dwayne's uncle. We can give hope, and this leads us to our second point. Timeless wisdom. So this this wisdom of this age is based on the forward movements of individuals and society. This is what we call progressivism. Uh, I don't mean this as a political label. I just mean that this is a concept or a way of thinking that says progress is a way to what we need as human beings. It's a belief that humanity's hope is found in forward movement. It's toward uh, Enlightenment of the mind, it's toward human potential. It's a casting off of the old traditions and belief systems and superstitions that hold us back. Mark Sayers, the author, says this, This is a foundation of the belief that Western developed culture is more progressive, enlightened, and evolved than other cultures. Hope then lies not in God, but in being on the right side of history. Have you heard that phrase on the news? We need to be on the right side of history. This is the wisdom of the age. That we can't look back, we have to look forward to what can be. But this is all doomed to pass away, Paul writes. Verse 6, and then verse 7, Paul, he speaks of another wisdom. He says this, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. There's a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Other translations put it as a mystery. There's a mystery that we hear and that we can hold on to that was decreed before you were ever born. He's saying there is more to what we see in front of us. In verse 8, But none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is referring to these authorities who were who were responsible for putting Jesus to death, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, King Herod. And Paul's saying, even though they thought they were in control, even though they thought they knew what they were doing, they had no idea what they were doing. They thought they were putting an end to the, this disruptive movement by this man called Jesus because he was a threat to their power. But what they were really doing is they were carrying out God's plan. His eternal plan, the wisdom of God in the act of the crucifixion was that was that He used wicked human beings for His own good and His glorious purpose of redeeming us. God's wisdom was that He used the acts of sinful men for our good. Uh, D. A. Carson, he writing on this passage, says this. It was God's matchless grace and wisdom that provided revelation clear enough to be understood after the events to which it pointed had occurred, but veiled enough that rebellious sinners would in some measure misinterpret it and put it together in wrong ways. Basically, what's happening here is God has said something would happen and he made it happen. And unless you have the wisdom, the eyes that God has given you, you cannot see what's really happening. This is tied to verse 7. When God decreed before the ages for our glory, he's saying, these men carrying out this evil act, they did it for our glory. And I want us to really think about this. That God wants for you to experience glory. God wants for you to have so much more than what you see now. Consider the struggles you've faced over the course of your life or consider the struggle that you're going through now. Consider, it, consider the suffering and pain. Consider all the things that make you anxious and keep you up at night. I, I got an email from a friend whose um, five-year-old son is dying of cancer and uh, she said, Uh, he's declining really quickly and there's maybe another week or two for him to live. Five years old. What do we say to this? The wisdom of this age tells us that if things fall apart, it's up to us to fix them. The wisdom of this age tells us that we're responsible for making ourselves or building ourselves up You're responsible for piecing your life together when things fall apart. Again, here is this thought that tells us you have to move forward, you have to learn from this, and you have to make something good of this. But in this passage, we hear something different God uses wicked men, evil acts, terrible scenarios for our good, not just for our good, but for our ultimate salvation. This is the glory that we were destined for. And this means that what seems pointless to us, God has ordained for a purpose. The wisdom of God, it says that we've never been left alone, that, the, that before the troubles ever came our way, God was already plotting how he would use them for our glory. Even the most painful events, even the most lonely nights, even the most confusing seasons, the most stressful circumstances, Paul says, these are for your glory. And as Jesus' followers, we have to understand this very uncomfortable truth that God uses suffering far more to achieve His purposes in our lives than comfort. But if we know the wisdom of God, we can know that our suffering it has this eternal significance. And it means that we need not despair like those without hope. And then if this is true, if God really has pieced everything together for our good, even the, the, the acts of the rulers of this age, we can believe the promise of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, And then Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is telling us, look beyond what's happening, because I'm working underneath that. Philippians 4, 7 tells us we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. If we believe that the wisdom of God is real, then we can have a peace that cannot be explained by the vocabulary that we know. There can be a stability to our soul that keeps us intact when we would otherwise collapse. Do you have a peace that surpasses all understanding? What do we as a church have? If people look at us and they say, "These, these Christians, they respond in the same way that we do I don't see anything different about them when their finances drop when there's tragedy when there is uh, a breakdown of relationships there's no difference but if we know the wisdom of God we can say I have a peace that surpasses all understanding the trouble might be deep but the peace of God goes deeper still uh, Paul moves on in verse 9, and he tells us this is how we can know that this is true. What no eye has seen, nor heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul, he's, he's quoting a couple of verses in the Old Testament book of Isaiah that refer to what has been hidden in the past but is now being revealed to those who follow Jesus. So Paul is telling us, before the wisdom of, of God was expressed in the crucifixion of Jesus, he was already whispering, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. And unless you had the ears to hear, you could not understand what he was talking about. And God was speaking through the prophets and the writings, through, uh, through the, the Jewish scriptures. These were filled with the references about this coming figure who would come once and for all to rescue God's people. And it means that God's plan of redemption for the world was set in motion before the universe was created. We have in the Bible passages that tell us, man, before these things were ever written, before we could understand, God was saying, these things are already happening. 1 Peter 1 says, Jesus Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for our sake. And Revelation 13 says that Jesus is a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The story of the crucifixion, this was written before there was even sin that entered into the world. And this is the creative genius of God. This is what we would call the wisdom of God. I mentioned a few weeks ago, we we have these tiny, really short lives. The Bible says our lives are a vapor, and we occupy a tiny little slice of time in the grand scheme of history. And yet, from eternity past, God planned out three trillion little details to bring you to where you are now. The gospel is that we were made to know our creator, God, who planned out all these things for us. But we gave into the wisdom of this age and we try to live apart from God. And the natural consequence is death and judgment. But in his love and wisdom, Jesus, he sent Jesus to live the life, the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And to receive the judgment on our behalf. And three days later, he he rose from the dead to prove that this life and death is not all there is. And if we believe this, if we believe this, and we can know him and we can receive a new life. Not just for tomorrow, but today. The hymn goes, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow. We have an eternal hope that begins now. So, I started this, this time with uh, c s lewis reference, and I, I kind of have this self imposed c s Lewis reference quota, one per sermon and um, because you know either j r token or c s lewis they 're going to find our way into they 're going to find their way into our sermons um, but today i 'm going to break i 'm going to exceed this self imposed quota because c s lewis he has a, a story of the resurrected Aslan, and the story the line which in the wardrobe. And I think this illustrates so well what Paul is saying in this passage. So Edmund in this story, Lion Witch in the wardrobe, he commits an act of treason. And this is an act that requires death. And this is the magic that the, if you remember the evil, wicked white witch, the witch calls for this calls for the death of Edmund because he's done something evil. He's committed an act of treason. And Aslan the lion, he stands in the place of Edmund, and he lays down his life for him on the stone tablet. So the lion, Aslan, dies, and the two girls who are closest to Aslan, Lucy and Susan, they they fall into despair. They've they've learned to love Aslan as someone that's so good, who's so pure. So after Aslan dies, these girls are so, so, so sad. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes in the book. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried until you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. Have you ever felt what Susie and felt? Lucy felt that night? So miserable that you cried until there were no more tears to cry. The story goes on. Lucy and Susan, they they hang their heads, thinking that this is the end of the story. And then they hear the stone tablet cracking. The stone tablet that the lion died on began to crack. And they can see nothing yet. And they fear that something even more awful has happened. They look back and see that the stone tablet was broken in two pieces but where is Aslan? The lion is nowhere to be found. And C. S. Lewis, this is what he writes. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their back, it is more magic. They looked around. There shining in a sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane stood Aslan himself. Oh, you're real, you're real, oh Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon Him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She should have known that, then, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. The witch knew a deep magic that called for the death of someone who committed an act of treachery. But what did the lion know? The lion knew a deeper magic. And this is here we are as a church indelible grace church, do you know that if you believe in the Christ, if you believe in the crucified and risen Messiah, that we live under the spell of a deeper magic? And this is the wisdom of God that Paul writes about. I, I suspect that C.S. Lewis had 1 Corinthians 2 in mind when he wrote this chapter. So this is what the wisdom of this age can not provide, that that the wisdom of this age says that there can be an optimism that things will get better. And this is rooted that something might happen in the future if we play our cards right, if the circumstances allow. But it's not rooted in anything other than human potential. In other words, the wisdom of the age is untethered. It's just hanging out there in hopes, in hopes that something will get better, that will get better. And Paul says in verse 6, this type of thinking, those who tell you that this is how it is, this is doomed to pass away. This is temporary. This is the deep magic. But there is a deeper magic still. The wisdom of God provides a hope that's rooted in what God has already done. What God has already done is he's given us Jesus, who by his life and death and resurrection, he stands at the center of history. And this is what everything is about. A few weeks ago, I talked about how we need to be a cross-centered church. Our, Our message has to be rooted in what Christ has already done, not in what we can do. And this helps us understand our past, it shapes us today, and it gives us a hope and a strength for tomorrow. And this is the wisdom that our church is built upon. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you belong to another age. You belong to another age. We can live in another reality C.S. Lewis, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You and I were made for another world. Paul in Ephesians 2 6, he says this that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places. Right now, in this very moment, when we're sitting at our office desk, when we're seated, this is when we're seated in the heavenly places, when we're disciplining our children, when we are receiving criticism from our spouse, when we're trying to figure out how to love other people well, when we're we're pulling weeds or when we're scrubbing the toilets, you are seated in the heavenly places. This is true of us today. Why? Because we ultimately don't belong to this age. We belong to another age. And we have as a church this message to bring into the other world. This is the message that we have to bring to the world. The vision of IGC is that we would follow Jesus, who leads us into another realm, and to help others follow Jesus. So how do we do this? Our final point. The revelation of the Spirit. So... I said a lot of words and um, probably I'm guessing because I just read to you what I studied this past week. Um, maybe you don't remember it all. Um, I can try to explain to you why I think we, we are where we are now as a culture and we might be able to propose remedies and solutions that arise from whatever problems come from the philosophies that people live by and this is worthwhile. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of good non-Christian advice that's given that we can listen to. Um, If we're believers, the apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. This is good and necessary. And I hope that this is something that many in our church are serious about. And maybe as a church, we can run our Sundays with excellence and we can build a community life that people are drawn to. And again, these are things that we should be striving for as a church. We can do all these things and we should. They're good. But we have something way, way, way better than our intellect and our efforts. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. We need to understand that for those who live by the wisdom of this age, their problem is not ultimately a philosophy problem or a thinking problem, it's a sin problem. There's a defect in the human heart. We were created to know and love God, and yet we don't. And this is our biggest problem. R.C. Sproul writes this of of mankind's default condition. He says this, God is our mortal enemy. He represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. No amount of persuasion by men or argumentation from philosophers or theologians can induce us to love God. We despise His very existence and would do anything in our power to rid the universe of His holy presence. If God were to expose His life to our hands, He would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore Him. We would destroy Him. These are strong words. He's saying, if you could hold God in your hand, you would crush Him if you could. And there are those who want to do that. That was us before Christ. So, what can we as a church possibly say or do in response to this? Shall we strong arm someone into coming on Sundays? Shall we try to overpower them with our intellectual arguments? Shall we study more books and think of better illustrations and stories? Is this what we'll do as a church? Or will we trust in an invisible God? Will we beg Him to send His Spirit to open our eyes and the eyes of the blind? Will we pray? Will we pray as a church? Pray that the Spirit will open our eyes to what's true. Pray that the Spirit will make known to us that which is true life. Well, we pray that the Spirit will reveal to us Jesus as Lord, not just to us, but to those who are far off. Pray that the Spirit would draw us closer to Jesus. Right before this service, we had a prayer meeting in room 21. Um, That's probably, for those who were there, this is probably the most important thing that we did all Sunday, was pray to God. What can we do? Except, rely on God. We have to pray. We have to pray. We have to trust the Spirit. If you want your friends, if you want the person sitting next to you to live in the wisdom of God, if you want them to live under the spell of this deeper magic, what's it going to take? The Spirit has to work. I'm going to keep this point short because we'll talk about it again in two weeks, God willing. But for now, this is what I want to leave us with. Pray, pray that the Spirit of God would work at IGC. And pray that we would be humble and willing to submit to all that He does. There's a deeper magic. There's so much more for you, so much more for us than what we see now. Will you pray with me? Father God, we... We ask that you would open our eyes if we're blind. I pray that as we sometimes we just let scales follow, fall over our eyes. We remove those scales. Give us a desire to see what is true and real, God. By your spirit, would you do this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.